Greetings again to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Uh, last time we covered Genesis chapter 3 up to uh, verse 5. Uh, we are now in the middle of uh, the deception, that is, the deception by Satan of Mother Eve. She was the one that he uh, concentrated on, and she was, was the one that was beguiled, as later on uh, the Apostle Paul will tell the church, that Eve was the one in the transgression, because she was the one that was beguiled by Satan, and Adam was not. Uh, Satan simply did not talk with, uh, with Adam. He knew that Adam knew better. And so he picked on the, on the weaker uh, sex, so to speak, and he knew her weakness, and therefore he was able to lead her in that direction. And so we read in, uh, in verse 5. Uh, verse 4, we know that the serpent, it says, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of, your, uh, that is, you eat of it, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And... She thought, well, that's, that's curiosity here. Uh, there's something that uh, we need to look into. In other words, he worked on, that is Satan, worked on an attribute, on a trait that uh, women have, a sense of curiosity, which is a wonderful attribute, but he was going to abuse it. That is, misuse it. Do it and use it for the, his own purpose. And she being innocent and has this, the sense of curiosity and how little ch- that's how little children learn, and uh, as long as we stay that kind of people, we can uh, continue to learn, because if we are not curious, how are we going to learn? There is no desire there. So that by itself, it was, you know, it was good. There was nothing wrong with it, but he was going to use it to his own advantage and purpose. And she did not have enough savvy at that point to realize, no, there is something a little bit more subtle here, and I've got to be careful. She just fell for it, because women generally tend to be more emotional and more uh, sensitive to... Uh, uh, the side things that they see, they either like it or they don't, and uh, sensitive also to matters of curiosity without thinking uh, what's behind it, unless they've been burned before that and now they've learned. At this point, obviously, neither Adam nor Eve have been burned, so she's very innocent and very curious, and she's falling for it. And so it says in verse 6, So when the woman saw, that's a matter of the sight, senses, you see. We should not uh, rely on the senses apart from the knowledge of God. If you put the two together, then you can discern your senses. As the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Hebrews, and that's basically what he told them. You have to study the Word of God, and you have to come to the point where you have the capacity to know the difference between right and wrong. And you should not be uh, ignorant people. He did not expect them to be ignorant, and as a matter of fact, he was uh, pretty unhappy with the fact that they were still behaving in a way as if uh, they were ignorant people. And he said they should not be that kind of people. You should be able to to discern those things and uh, use the senses and come to the point where you can really understand the difference between right and wrong. And so he, he tells them that, you should be studying, you should be knowing, you should be learning, and you should be using the senses and come to maturity and be able to, to understand it. And so he's telling them in the book of Hebrew in chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 5 and on, let's say, no, verses uh, 10, he speaks about uh, Melchizedek, and he's 
really desirous to tell them an awful lot of things that are more detailed, more deep, more profound. But in verse 11 it says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, you lost your sense of curiosity, desiring to know more, which is a good quality. And he says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you see, teachers are people who constantly learn because they have a sense of curiosity and fascination, which is a beautiful quality to have. And Eve was just full of it, but Satan took advantage of it and misused it. And so he says, you should have been teacher by now. And instead of that, you need to, uh, for someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And how many of us are in that category today? It's amazing to talk to some people and to realize that there are simple basics that they don't even know, as they should. And he says they shouldn't be in that, in that uh, state of mind. And he says in verse uh, 12 in the middle, And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And that's what happens to people who, leave their, who, who uh, abandon their sense of curiosity. If you do it, and if you do lose your fascination with life, with truth, with life, knowledge and understanding, you become uh, soon dull of hearing. And he said, well, I've heard it before. Instead of being curious and saying, well, there must be something more to it. Let's go deeper. And that's how you find more and more. And when we get to that state of mind, we lose it. And so he says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. You see, he's still in the state of uh, Adam and Eve at this point. Just like little babies, innocent and clean and pure and, and, and naive, so to speak. But he said, no, you shouldn't be in that. You should be adults. You should behave like adults. You should seek deeper things, stronger things. And so he says in verse 14, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, not misuse, not lack of use, but by reason of use or practice, you see, uh, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And here, Mother Eve was going to learn that lesson the hard way and the wrong way. You see, and God wants us, by listening to his commandments and obeying them, through that process we're going to know the difference between right and wrong without having to do wrong, without having to do evil. If a mother tells a child, Johnny, don't touch the stove because it's very hard, now that it's very hot, and if you're going to touch it, you're going to get burned, and he says, well, mom knows best, so he listens. And by faith, he believes it. He doesn't need to touch it. But if his sense of curiosity, if it leads him to say, well, I've got to try it for myself, in that case, he's committing a transgression against the commandment of his mother. And that's, in essence, what Adam and Eve have done at this point. Uh, first Eve and then Adam followed her uh, example, and so all of us are doing still the same. We are told not to do this, and we do it. And we are told to do this and that, and we don't want to do it. You see, little children that find out they've got a mind, and they say, I'm going to use my own mind. Nobody's going to tell me how to use my mind. And that's not wisdom. Uh, we do not learn to, to use the senses that way, to discern right from wrong through this process. That's our own way of doing it. And so this is where uh, Eve is finding herself. And so she saw that the tree was good for food, which it was. 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes, which it was, because every single tree in that garden was in that category, including the tree of the good, of, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, and God specifically made it that way, and that's why Satan uses that to this very day, with great success. He uses all the things that are alluring and seductive and beautiful and, and wonderful and all that, and uh, things that are appealing to the senses, and he's using it to get us, so to speak, to do the wrong things. And God says, no, you should not do it, you see. Sex is wonderful. It's good. It's pleasurable. It's great. God created it that way with all the senses and emotions and passions and desires in it. And for that matter, wisdom and anything else. And yet when man is abusing it, doing it with the wrong person, we're not discerning. We're not learning. We're not using our senses to discern that which is right and wrong and do the right and avoid the wrong. And then we pay the penalty. And sometimes it takes a while. And so we think, well, I did it, nothing happened, so I'll do it again. And so Eve is going to learn the hard way that that was not a good idea to do. And so she looks at the tree. It looks good. It's pleasant. It's attractive. It's alluring. It's seductive. And she begins to think, what's wrong with God? Why can't I eat it? It just looks like all the other trees. I can eat the other trees. Why not this one? And Adam probably would have reasoned differently had he confronted the devil. Or maybe he would not. But in either case, this is what she did. And so she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was good. It tasted good. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. And now we're talking about a psychological, intellectual uh, area. Not only the, the physical senses and the eating of it and tasting of it, but now even the mind is going to eat from it, so to speak. And she says, man, that's, that's, that's going to make me wise. So that curiosity law, uh, led her in the wrong direction. God wants us to do things and to experience things and to learn things that will make us wise, but not through this process of rebellion and iniquity and transgression of His law, but through obedience to learn wisdom, not through disobedience. And that's why later on James would call the wisdom of this world is sensual, it is just of the senses, and it is earthly, it is not of God, and it is devilish, he says, therefore, because of that, because of the consequences. And that's exactly what Satan is doing, using all the glory of God and bringing man to take it in the wrong way, in disobedience, not in obedience. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, there's one word that was introduced here that created whole morality that affected and affects all of humanity to this very day. And let's go through it again now in verse 6, where we read that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and the second one is that it was pleasant to the eyes. Now, the word pleasant, and we're going to concentrate on this word, and probably the, the rest of the study will be taken with this one single word, because this one single word affected humanity in a very, very profound way, in the wrong way, unfortunately, and contrary to the way that God intended for this word to be used. That is the concept of this word, what's behind it. Pleasant to the sight. In Hebrew, the word, again, translation is poor, uh, and unfortunately, with all the good that uh, the King James translations, the translators have done in this book, they've done a lot of damage also, and not being genuine Hebrew scholars. And uh, 
Maybe they were not uh, humble enough to go to those who had uh, a more perfect knowledge and understanding. They tried to do it on their own and they fell flat on their face in many areas. This is one of them. Anyway, the word pleasant is ka'ava in Hebrew. And the word ka'ava was translated in English in many cases as last, which is exactly what it means. In other cases, as pleasant. In other cases, as uh, other words that are innocent words, you might say. But the word itself, ta'ava, translated into last, when it is, was misunderstood, was misused, and an awful lot of wrong concepts were created around it. And in essence, when Adam and Eve were pure in their own sight, were clean, were righteous, because they've never known evil, this word to them was pleasant and clean and pure. But when uncleanness entered into their minds through sinfulness, through transgression, then the innocent and the pure became impure. As later on, we shall read through the prophet Isaiah, that the people of Israel, by many, many years of disobedience, through many years of disobedience and transgression, and rebelling against the law of God. They got to the point where they didn't know the difference between right and wrong. They mixed up everything. They were no longer innocent. They were no longer pure. So even that which God created to be pure, be it sex, be it wisdom, be it knowledge, be it whatever it may be, everything was mixed up in their, in their minds and everything was upside down. And so God is speaking to about that very uh, state of mind in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, and it says, Woe to those that call evil good, and good evil. How does men, how does a woman, how does a child get to that state of mind? Well, that which is evil, he says, it's good. And that which is good, as God defined it, he says, it's evil. And so he says, Woe to those that call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see? And verse 21 is explained. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Because people think that they are wise, that they know better, therefore they begin to turn things around. Where good becomes evil and evil becomes good and light becomes darkness. And that's exactly what happened here with Adam and Eve. Once they fell for the lie of Satan, everything became mixed up. And so this terminology of ta'ava, or last, took a totally different connotation from the real meaning of it. And so even the translators couldn't bring themselves at this point to put that word ta'ava, pleasant, was the word that was used. And we're going to go now through a study of this very word because it has an awful lot to do with our understanding of the Word of God, of the intimacy of the relationship of the Word of God, of the intimacy in the marriage, marital relationship between man and God, between man and woman, and man and his fellow man, so to speak, because it affected everything. This, not the Word, but the concept behind it. And so we're going to go through that now to give it a better understanding, the biblical understanding. Uh, I'm going to read now from... Uh, a book that was written a while back that deals with this subject. And so we'll be doing, doing uh, uh, some kind of reading here. Uh, and 
will explore the concept that was pure and was holy, that was clean and became evil and affected. And uh, you can see it not only in uh, the world of Christianity, but every other society, even communist Russia, that has been communist for a long time, that had no knowledge of the truth, no knowledge of the word of God, but totally denied religion. Even they, you see, were affected by it. And they too have the same kind of morality. And so, we see a people that were devoid of the knowledge of God and the meaning and the purity of it, that developed concepts that affected their intimate relationship and defiled their sexuality and they defiled their morality and they defiled their attitudes and their feelings and their emotions that made it difficult for them to have intimacy in relationships. Not only sexual intimacy in the marriage, but also intimacy between fathers and their daughters or their sons and mothers and their sons and brothers and sisters and friends and relatives and all that because the mind became very filthy in many ways. And what we're going to do now, we're going to examine more specifically the Catholic Fathers' attitude towards some of the major taboos of the Christian morality of the West because they are the ones, in specific speaking about the West, we're in the West, we're not going to deal with China now or Russia or, other, or Africa because all of them were affected to one degree or the other by the same attitude. But in specific we're going to talk about those that formed the morality of the West and those were the Catholic Fathers. And we're going to examine their attitude towards some of the major taboos of the Christian morality of the West. And so let's begin with their concepts of the love of the flesh. How do they understand it? And remember, those were not people who had clean minds, pure attitude. Those were people that were defiled because of their background. And so they brought their background into the new religion and defiled it too and polluted the minds of many. And many, many suffered needlessly because of that and to this day. And one of the major reasons why men degrade the body of a woman, the person of a woman, and vice versa sometimes, the other way around too, is because of that very reason, the pollution of an attitude of a word that was introduced here in the beginning and the making it into something totally different from what it really was meant to be. And so in the Christian morality, lust is a forbidden attitude. You always hear about it. You should not lust. Put to death the lust of the flesh. And lust is a very big thing. And the very thing that people uh, are teaching themselves and others and their children not to do, that's the very thing that they do. And so you see an awful lot of people, including very, very supposedly very, very religious people, who are still lusting and should not be doing those things. And are falling prey for that. Because that's human nature. Whatever you're told not to do, this is exactly what you want to do. And so in the Christian morality, lust is a forbidden attitude. It has created the greatest source of mental anguish and torments in the personal lives of both married and unmarried couples. It affected everybody. The Catholic Fathers and later their Protestant counterparts have enshrined such a concept in the heart of the so-called Christian morality. That's the center of the whole morality. And notice I did not say the biblical morality, but the Christian morality. These two moralities, and for that matter it affected also the, 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 the Jewish morality in the especially in Eastern Europe and Western Europe where they were in close contact with the Catholic world and the Protestant world in contrast to those who were in the Middle East who had, they were not totally pure but they had a better uh, understanding of these concepts and these two moralities in many ways are worlds apart that is the Christian morality and the Biblical morality were their teachings Biblical in nature we have to ask 
did the results prove this teaching to be right? In other words, by the fruit you shall know them, whether pure, whether divine. Was it a sane doctrine or satanic in origin and nature that is at last is evil? Let's find out this truth from the mouth of the very maker himself. So, let me begin by giving you the reader, and you know, this is the reader in, uh, in the book, and to you the listener, a moral quiz to help you under understand or determine the true source of morality. Find out if it is from your maker or from the arch enemy whose church is described in the books of Revelation Corinthians as the great whore and the mother of harlots, who made all nations drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornications. And notice the sexual terminology that God is using, because that's exactly what she did. She took the pure and the clean and the wholesome in every way, in every aspect, and made it filthy and polluted and defiled. And that's the morality of the Western world, and that's why you have so many problems. That's why you have pornography and you have uh, all those movies that are defiling, corrupting, and polluting the minds of many. And uh, novels and everything else. And all the crimes of uh, sexual nature and the total perversion that you find in, in many areas, even to, the, to uh, not only with human beings, with bestiality also. And so in Revelation, this, this church, this woman, again, woman, because this is the woman involved here, you know, that is looking at the tree and eating from it. And uh, it's not that we put uh, all, the, all the blame on Mother Eve, you know, men were just as guilty as she was, even more guilty being the responsible one that should have uh, done better and understand better and prevent that to begin with. And so, this great whore and mother of harlots who made all nations drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornications, she brought these demoniacal doctrines. She taught them. And the preachers of the land taught it from the pulpit. And they infected and they infested, you know, this filth and stench and pollution into the minds of many until they came to the point where good became evil and evil became good and light became darkness and darkness became light and so forth. Now, I'm going to bring you a quiz here, or to give you a quiz, and this quiz is made of the following questions, and listen very carefully. One, can a Christian, one that is called a Christian, that is a follower of Christ, and for that matter, anybody that follows righteousness or follows God, can a Christian last and still be qualified to enter into the family ruling kingdom of God? Two, can a man or a woman last for their mate, yet without sin? Three, is Lusting is sin. Four, do you really know the difference between lust and desire? Five, if you lust for something, would your maker grant it to you? Six, if you caught yourself lusting, should you repent of it? Seven, and lastly, yet most importantly, does God, Christ, all the holy angels ever last? Do they last? Those who are spirit beings. Those who are holy, those who are perfect, those who are righteous. Don't be too quick to answer. Because remember, all of our background came from our parents, from the society, from the culture, from the previous generation, and ultimately speaking in this case, to the Catholic fathers that emanated, that disseminated this morality throughout the Western world. And that was enshrined in the very core of Christian morality and became the, the basically uh, the bottom line of what is right, what is wrong. And that affected people. Now both Catholics and Protestants have blindly followed the early Catholic Fathers' teachings on this subject and they do to this very day. Even the non-religious ones do, because they sort of drink it from the air. 
from the society, from the culture, from the parents, from those around them, either verbally or in innuendos, silently, in so many ways, it filters and enters into our minds and affects our perception. And so our senses, instead of, of, of studying the Word of God and learning to discern the difference between right and wrong, by studying the wrong things, we're totally incapable of knowing what is right and what is wrong, and so we get the whole thing mixed up. That's why God says, whoa, to people like that, look at the consequences of this kind of, of misunderstanding, misconceptions, false teachings. And so, this they have done without ever, that is the ones that follow this morality, they have done without ever making an effort to thoroughly check the biblical teachings concerning the makers on morality. And the results of such deliberate negligence are written with a scorched iron pen in the lives of sexually tormented people of the West, and many other nations, and many other peoples, for that matter, all of humanity. Because as God describes a certain being who deceived the whole world. And this morality affects all of humanity, not only the West, but we are concentrating on the West because that's what basically most of us are. And biblically deficient and ignorant so-called Christian moralists, quote-unquote, since time immemorial have read New Testament passages that have spoken against the negative abuse of lust, sensuality, and covetousness, and have concluded without any further investigation into the entire subject that such ingredients are seen. You see, not having total background. They were not able to discern right from wrong. They were still in the milk of the world. Therefore, the dogmatic conclusion was as follows. Lust, sensuality, and covetousness must be uprooted, stifled, and squelched, and be put to death if one is to be morally Christian. Now that's how they came up with the concepts, Christian ethics, Christian doctrine, Christian morality, Christian this, Christian that. Well, nowhere in the Bible do you find this terminology. It's a God, the law of God, the way of God, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, the testimonies of God. Even to the end of Revelation, the church is known. That is the true one, in contrast to the false one. There is a group of people who keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And remember the ark of the testimony that Moses built, that God called him to do, and he put in it the Ten Commandments and the rest of the, the book of the law. And that's the testimony that the people of God have. So they know the difference between right and wrong. And they know what Christ said, and they know what God said, and they know what is true and what is not. And the others don't. And so they invented all kinds of other names because they wanted to create a new religion and separate their new religion, which is a false one, based on false premises, false teachings in many ways, not every way. Remember, it's a counterfeit religion, so it has many good things there to try to be as close as possible to the truth. But many perversions, too. As Peter uh, says about those who read the epistles of the Apostle Paul, he said there are many, many who are reading the scriptures of the Apostle Paul, our beloved you know, brother Paul, he said, and those people... Not having knowledge and understanding, being unlearned, he said, they're wrestling with those scriptures which some of them are hard to be understood, and they're doing it to their own destruction. You see? Because people who have no knowledge, thorough knowledge of the Word of God, to, re to have a pure mind, pure understanding, pure concepts of what God is really all about and what His teachings are all about, they fall into that category, and we must not be in that category. So, that's a part of the process of coming out of Babylon. It doesn't happen the first time uh, we came out of sin. It's a long process. And many times we're not even aware of the fact that we're still so deeply into it. As someone who, 
who came to understand better, used to tell many people, and some of you who were a part of that tradition in the past, you remember that statement where he said, too much Protestantism has been rubbed off on you. In other words, you brought Egypt with you. You brought your background with you instead of leaving it behind. And nobody can leave it behind just immediately. That's a process. It takes a while. And so God demands that we constantly do it. And so, these people, looking into the Word of God, in this case, uh, the part that was called by them, uh, not by God, the New Testament, He didn't call it the Old Testament, New Testament, this is the Word of God. Men shall lead by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The first portion, the Hebrew Scriptures, so to speak, and Aramaic, uh, in part, were called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. They want to call the Old Testament. Now, in Exodus 20, you read about uh, the covenant, that is the Old Testament. But that, that, that doesn't mean that the whole book of teachings or writings is called Old Testament. And for that matter, the New Testament too. Uh, uh, those are the writings that continued of, of uh, revelations from God. And it's not the New Testament. It's the Word of God. You see? But in order to separate one from the other, because they wanted to go in a totally different direction, they began to separate and so everything, so to speak, in the Old Testament, which they called it by that name, became Jewish, Judaism, and everything in the New Testament became uh, New Testament teachings for the New Testament church and Christianity, all kind of words that you don't see anywhere in the Bible. Well, there was a, a, a sinister, unfortunately, uh, reason behind it, not a wholesome and a clean one. There's nothing wrong about calling yourself a Christian or speaking about the word Christianity. You know, men can invent all kind of things like that as long as his mind is wholesome and clean. But... There was a devious purpose behind it, and that was not right. Anyway, therefore, their dogmatic conclusion was as follows, because they thought that whenever God spoke about lust, that means it's all sin and wrong, because Paul was addressing wrong examples of abuse. You see, he was dealing with people who came out of a religion of uh, idolatry, of harlots and prostitutes in the temple and all that. So he was talking about the abuse of, uh, of uh, that quality of lust. Not the right use of it. And so people thought, well, it's got to be all bad. It's either all good or all bad. And it wasn't that way. And so therefore, their dogmatic conclusion was as follows, as I read before. Lust, sensuality, and covetousness must be uprooted, stifled, and squelched, and be put to death. If one is to be morally pure, that is, Christian. And the transgressors, they declared, will be consigned and condemned into a hellish lake of fire. And many people are scared to death because of that. Not because of the right understanding of it, you see. Yet, shockingly enough, not one of these self-appointed religious moralists have ever bothered to consult the Maker's Manual about the other side of lust, the concept of it, the reality of it, the purity of it, and its purpose in fulfilling the two great commandments of love toward Maker and love toward fellow man that demands the totality of the mind, the heart, of the flesh, of the might, of the strength, of the energy of both men and women, you see, without which you cannot have that union and you cannot fulfill these two great commandments that demand the totality of your emotional expression and your passions and your desires and all that toward God and toward men and toward His Word. And so, we, you know, those who are interested in learning better have a, a precious chance to find out for themselves, and you who are listening, you know, for yourself, what your maker, that is the complete teachings of your maker, say about this concept, about this such vital information. So let's find out. 
Now, the Hebrew dictionary, whose authors, mind you, were neither Catholic nor Protestant in morality or religion, they defined love as follows, because they understood it, they knew the language, they knew what it meant. So love means in Hebrew this, to desire eagerly. Now, you can desire the right thing, you can desire the wrong thing. You see, it all depends what you do with it. So it means to desire eagerly. And so love means uh, to desire eagerly, to long for, to wish, to crave, to covet, but in the right way. Covet, like somebody saying, I covet your prayers. To yearn, to be eager to, to have an appetite for. When you say in Hebrew, have a good appetite, like in French, bon appétit, you say have a good lust. That's the word they use, bete avon. Comes from the same word, the same root. And so, in other words, lust is a strong longing, eager desire, or appetite towards something, toward God, toward fellow man, and it could be used rightly, or it could be used wrongly, that is, abused. By itself, it is neutral. Whether lust is good or bad should be determined only by your maker and not by mere fallible mortal man that to begin with doesn't have a clean mind. And that is very important to realize that. And so the word lust in different forms appears 107 times in the Bible, that is in the Creator's Book of Life. 54 times this word appears in the Hebrew Scriptures, and 53 times in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, well that's the terminology everybody calls it, so I'll use those terminologies, but you should know the difference. In the Old Testament, in 35 cases, it is used to describe positive aspects, and in 19 cases, it is spoken in the negative, though not always associated with sin. So let's look now at some examples where lust is used in a positive, since the negative aspects are too well known and overemphasized in the Western religion and society, and therefore we're not going to spend time uh, looking at those. We're all aware of it. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 14, we find the place where the translators of the King James Version, who thought of themselves at times purer than their maker. Remember, they were Puritans and Victorians. And their morality was what? The morality of their religion. And their religion was what? Well, in Revelation 17, it describes that morality, the source of it. If the woman is called a whore, and her daughters are called the harlots, what morality do you think would they have? You see? Those were not qualified to translate properly things that are wholesome, because their minds were not, was not wholesome, unfortunately. And so, these people thought that they are purer than God. When God used specific, graphic, intimate, sexual terminology, they said, no, we cannot use that, because, not that they said it loudly, but that's in essence what came out of it. Uh, we are purer than God, and it's not proper, you know, to use those words, so we're going to change it and give it euphemism. And that's not the way to try to uh, treat the Word of God, because it is purer than any word of man. And so, in this one place, would they have done it right, uh, ironically? They translated it correctly in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And so in verse 12 we read, And you shall bestow your money on whatsoever your soul lusts after. In other words, when you take your second tithe, and you take it to the feast, and there you sell uh, either you sell or you change your money for uh, items that you want to, uh, to use for your own uh, needs. Well, this is the word that God used. This is whatever your soul lasts for. There is nothing wrong with your soul lasting for anything. 
uh, assuming that you didn't steal it from somebody else. It's your own. And so in this case, the account is referring to the money or to the tithe of the Israelites who were commanded to save and take with them to Jerusalem on three annual festivals. And so they walked down the road and they saw dates and they saw uh, 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 some kind of fruit that they, you know, maybe merchant, merchants, you know, brought it from other countries, a peculiar thing, so they saw jewelry or they saw uh, all kind of good things that they wanted to buy. Whatever they saw lasted after, God said, you can go and have it. Nothing wrong with that. Another, another scripture we read, the lust of the righteous is only good, not bad. That's in the Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 23. You see? In other words, a righteous man is not going to lust for the wrong things. Therefore, his lust is good. And that's what your, the Word of God says. Because it is a pure word. But man made it filthy. So man is not going to use that terminology. Because man in his own sight is purer than God. So this lust is in contrast to that of the wicked. In Proverbs 10.24 we read, The lust of the righteous shall be granted. In other words, if you go to God and your soul lusts for good things, you see, you want to get married and you see a woman and, and you fall in love with her and you lust for that woman, but not lust in the wrong way. And you go to God and you tell God that you want that woman if she's good for you, if it's right. And so you lust for her or position or in office or any other gift or whatever it may be. The Word of God tells you that the lust of the righteous shall be granted because he is righteous, therefore his lusting is also righteous. Now, can you believe that? With the morality that most people have, they read that and say, no way, that cannot be. Well, God says yes, that's what it is. If your mind is confused, that's your problem. But I don't feel that way and I don't think that way. And when we reorient our mind and cleanse our minds and hearts and, and spirit and all that, then we begin to see things from God's point of view. And it's totally different than ours. That's why God says, look, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And you see, you can say the same thing. My morality is not your morality. As the heaven is higher above the earth, so are mine than yours. And we have to think that way. Seek the divine, not the fleshly, the devilish, the earthly concepts of anything. In Proverbs 13, verse 12, we read that the hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when lust comes, it is a tree of life. How did you ever know that? Established Christianity has always taught that lust in any shape, manner, or form is a sin and will definitely earn you the lake of fire, not the tree of life. And yet that's exactly what God says. If you have the love of the truth, then it's about time you check the true source of your so-called Christian morality. Sometimes we have to do it. In Psalm 12, that is Psalm 21, verse 2, David, a man ago, according to God's own heart, as was stated in the New Testament, has declared in a prayer to his Maker, you have given him, speaking about himself, his heart's lust. Now, is God involved in satisfying your lusts? If they are good and right for you, why not? Of course he is. And so we have to understand what it really means. In other words, get the background, get the context, and then you will know what it means. If you don't do that, you will end up, yes, you are reading the right thing, but you are getting the right, wrong meaning from it. And so it's important to see it from God's point of view. That's the background. 
the morality of God, what it really means, how God intended for it to be. I mean, even us, we know today that there are many words that to us that are very innocent. You go and tell people, uh, well, you know, could you give me bread? Well, you're talking about bread. Your mind is clean. He's speaking about bread. But somebody else, uh, he thinks about drugs. That's not bread to him. You see? So when a mind is, is, is walked up and uh, deception enters in and people uh, become uh, unclean in their minds, well, everything becomes perverted. And that's, in, and that's what happened to the word or the concept and the reality of lust. And so, in Psalm 45, verse 11, uh, in this case it speaks about the church, the bride of God, the woman of God, and Christ, and God. And here we read, So shall the king greatly lust for your beauty, speaking about God and his wife, and his church, and his people. For he is your Lord, and worship you him. You see? There you see God himself lusting. Again, in Psalm 132, and verse 13, it states, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has lusted for his habitation. That's the word used there, Tava. Does your maker lust for anything? Of course, of course he does. Anything that is right, just like the righteous man. And so we can do the same. So we can have those feelings, but the problem is, do you lust for your wife, or do you lust for somebody else's wife? That's what the problem is. Nothing wrong with lusting. But lusting for the wrong thing. That's where the wrong act takes place. Not when you do it with the right things. So we have to clean our minds before we can do that. And think purely. Now, in your mind and conscience, that is, if your mind and conscience have not been defiled, you would have knowledge. It's not going to be a problem. Our last example is in Isaiah 26 and verse 8. Here we read, in the way of your judgment, O Lord, have we waited for you. The last of our soul is to your name. You see? When the righteous who desire God according to God's will, to desire Him with all their being and heart, with all their passions, all their emotions, all their feelings, everything that is in them, as the psalmist would say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within you. You're going to be lusting for God. But if you are lusting for idols, you've got a problem. That's a different story. And so, it is this pure understanding of what lust is all about that drove David to declare passionately and many others to his maker. My heart longs for you, pains for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And so forth. And so it is when all the people of God who learn the word of God, who have pure mind, pure knowledge and understanding, their morality is not Victorian, no Puritan, no whatever, any other concept that entered into the mind of man in the last many thousands of years. These people, as they read the, the word of God, and know that it is pure, and know that God is pure, had no problem with that. And that's in essence where Mother Eve was at this point. Her mind was pure. So she looked at the tree, and it was something to be lusting for. But her problem is she was lusting for the wrong thing. And that was wrong. But she could have lusted for all the, the other trees and she could have lusted for the tree of the law of life that God commanded them to eat from. And that's why God made it pleasant to the sight. Attractive. Alluring. Seductive. Lustful, so to speak. And that's why he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for the mind of God, for the truth of God, for the nature of God, and for God himself, for his being, his very being, his very existence, so to speak, so we can become one with him. 
and they can last for him. And they don't sin in doing so. And so it's very important as we approach any given uh, quality, trait of the mind of God that we read it that way. Because as we'll go forward, especially as you go through the prophets, you see the very graphic sexual terminology that God used, spiritually speaking, about either the right use of sex, physical or spiritual, or the abuse of it. And those who have a clean mind, pure mind, they don't have a problem with that. They can read it. They can see it. And they can understand it. And they can appreciate it for what it is. But those who have a polluted, defiled, contaminated mind, well, they have a problem. And so God wants us to, as James would say, purify your hearts. You know, you're double-minded. Because we're all filthy. As the prophet Isaiah, a very righteous man, he said, all of our righteousness are as filthy garments before you. And if you do not believe it, we will never know God in a pure way. We will never be able to become one with him. Because if we come to him and we have defiled thoughts, like Adam and Eve became later on, and that's why, what was the first action? They went into hiding. They were ashamed. They covered their bodies. You see, they were not uh, able to come uh, into the open, in the sun, you know, under the light. Because people who go into works of darkness, they have to hide it. Because they are ashamed. They feel guilty. And so we have to understand it from God's point of view. And to purify our minds, we have to read the Word of God and by the washing of the Word, so to speak, remove every spot and blemish from us. And that's the process also of coming out of Babylon. And we shall have much more to say about that uh, when we get to chapter 11, the end of 11, chapter 12 of Genesis, when we'll begin a new series there at that point about uh, the true identity of, uh, of the Church of God. But uh, now we're still in the Garden of Eden, and so this is what Mother Eve is doing. She's looking at something, and it's pleasant to the eyes, and the tree is desirable to make one wise, and so she takes of the fruit and she eats, and she also gives to her husband. And you would say, why would her husband take it? Well, her husband also fell for it, so he too was responsible. But when Satan came over there, he was not addressing the man, he was addressing the woman. And maybe the man was not necessarily there. Maybe she took the fruit and went to him, very excited. And she says, look, I ate it. Nothing happened. God must be hiding from us. And he began to doubt and was curious about it, just like she was. And thinking, well, maybe really nothing's going to happen. And so he took from it also an aid. At this point, we're going to stop and we're going to continue next time. This is again Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.